Hey, chocolate lovers. As I mentioned at the end of the last episode, this is the first of many episodes I expect to do basically whenever I have the chance. This episode is the full-length version of an interview I did with Julia Zotter back in March of this year. Julia is the creative director and a chocolate maker at her family's company, Sauter Chocolates. She and I dig into the development of flavors over at Sauter, as well as some of the larger socio-cultural pushes towards milk alternatives in chocolate. Enjoy the interview, stay safe, and I'll catch you later. My name is Julia Zotter, and um, my family company is also called Zotter. We're from Austria. We're a fully organic and fair bean-to-bar producer. We've been producing bean-to-bar since 2006 and confectionery chocolates since 1995-ish. We've been a family company ever since. We love experimentation, and there are just so many interesting ingredients out there that are still left to explore. People are talking more about milk alternatives because of the cases in the U.S. to redefine what milk is. And Mm -hmm. that has implications in terms of milk chocolate. Like in the U.S., you can't legally name something as milk chocolate unless it is a minimum percentage of uh, milk Mm -hmm. powder. So now there are lawsuits happening. Yeah. So I think that's just more in people's minds. And it's also very timely because so many people, especially I saw it at Chocoa last week, so many people are releasing Mm -hmm milk alternative bars yeah i think uh finally also veganism has arrived in the mainstream Mm -hmm. which is a great thing for the planet and there's just so many exciting ingredients that can be used but also like people are just i think more open to seeing further back in the value chain where their food Mm -hmm. is coming from and and just being more thoughtful about it like milk powder is no longer just milk powder it's something that comes from a cow it's not just by itself it's like part of a system it's something that comes from an animal and people are keenly aware of animal husbandry nowadays as well i think though it's it, it also has to do with the craft chocolate industry per se because um now there's a lot of small companies that like to experiment a lot and they're just so much faster with new developments compared to let's say cadbury or walrona or calabout People are trying to also stand out and be seen and tasted. And why do you think it is that they're able to be so much faster with all of these innovations? Well, they have generally smaller equipment. So it's you, you'll get to like a finished chocolate bar in a small batch much faster. And they're much better at also storytelling and, and, and talking directly to their customers. And they're much more agile when it comes to serving a niche. So when you're only making small batches of chocolates, it's a lot easier to find your customers um, that are specialized, especially in the beginning of, let's say, the veganism wave. There weren't so many customers that were interested, so it was kind of difficult to be touched by a big company. But a small company, they can tell the story. The trendsetters are usually people who are more into... um, background stories, small companies, artisan or craft-made products. 
And for, for smaller producers, I think it was just far more accessible to get into that market compared to like a big company, let's say Cadbury, that is doing quite well in the classic and traditional dairy milk chocolate segment. I don't think they really had a need to push into a new segment because there was no competition anyway for them. There was no, no need to invest a lot of money into starting a new market, which was the vegan or milk alternative market, versus for smaller producers, it made sense because they were more agile doing all that. So I think Zotter plays in this really interesting space in between these huge companies and very small craft companies, because it's like, when I think of a Calibut or um, Valrona, I think of companies that are concerned primarily with profits and somewhat with flavor. But when I think of Zadar, I think more of like looking at the ingredients and what you can do with ingredients and origins and telling stories. But when did you launch the vegan milk chocolates? And what made you want to start that line of non-dairy milk chocolates? Well, actually quite early on. So we started Bean to Bar in 2006, which was definitely before any big craft chocolate movement even started to be on the map as far as I can tell for Austria and, and our neighboring countries at least. I think it started a little bit later in the US, but the US was always like first in the craft chocolate movement and then Europe was kind of like following suit. For us, it's all about the experimentation. So um, when we made our first vegan chocolates, it was really about the flavor and about creating something really interesting. Um, the first vegan milk chocolates that we developed were soy milk chocolates because soy milk was then the number one milk alternative that people were using and soy milk powder was also readily available and gradually as the as the vegan movement started to become stronger more and more milk alternatives also started emerging like rice milk coconut milk so as soon as a new raw material started emerging on the market and obviously also certified organic, we were willing to start experimenting and see how it would change the flavor of chocolate. So for us, the first reason to start was flavor and creating something different. And then as we started to get more and more into the milk alternatives, it started to become about offering vegan alternatives. Even though we're a company that also uses meat and chocolates, we definitely also want to push the boundaries to create more and more vegan options for our customers that taste great and that don't make you feel like you have to say no to things or it's you know like it's a hard thing to live vegan or at least partially vegan so a little bit of a taste aspect a little bit of an experimentation aspect but definitely also an environmental concern Which year did you launch the soy vegan chocolates? Um, I'd have to check a long, long time ago, but it must have been around 2007 or 8. Wow, so, so that was one of the first, because you all have like more than 200 flavors, or is that a low ball? More than 500. Oh my god. <laughs> but you don't have them all at the same time. At the same time, about how many do you have? About 500. Oh, well, let's say 450. Because some are always out of stock. But um, you could eat a chocolate every day of the year and then do, do it twice on a Sunday. 
and still not be infinite at the end of the year. But um, that's why it's very difficult to define our size, because yes, we're bigger than your usual craft chocolate maker, but we also have far more different chocolates. So every single kind of chocolate is actually, we don't make that much of it. There's some niche productions that we do where like we might have you know, like a thousand pieces per year. And then, of course, there's our best sellers where you sell more than a hundred thousand bars per year. So we, we have like the entire range of really small batches and, and fairly big batches for a craft industry. I know not all. In- yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no worries. Um, I was just saying, um, and vegan as well, or dairy alternative, when we started it, it was more like a curiosity thing. And by now, like for the last two years, we're seeing an increase in demand in all kinds of vegan chocolates. Yeah, that that was one of my later questions, actually, was how have people reacted to the non-dairy milks over time? And has that changed at all? Has it been like people who are looking for lactose-free chocolates or like vegan chocolates or just sustainable things, presents? Like it was two years ago that you think people really started looking for them on purpose? Yes, I think so. It's because veganism has more or less arrived in the mainstream. So, for example, like maybe three, four years ago, you'd go to a restaurant, ask for a vegan option, and then they'd be like, well, we can give you rice and maybe some carrots, right? So people had no, at least here in in Austria, not really much of an idea of why anyone should be vegan and had more like an air of being like a green warrior kind of type. Um, and nowadays it's finally arrived in the mainstream. When we started with uh, vegan alternatives, it was more of an experimentation for most of our customers. So they would read like soy milk chocolate and then they tasted and tried, but not because they were vegan or they were looking for any alternative, but because they thought it was interesting. And then over the course of the years, that started to change more and more with the advent of more um, organic supermarkets. Um the organic wave definitely came before the vegan wave. But also a lot of people that were looking for niche products went to organic supermarkets or organic markets to find vegan or lactose-free alternatives. And that has pushed the boundaries on what people thought of vegan, what people thought of lactose-free. It always seemed more like in the beginning, like oh, you, you're sick if you're lactose intolerant. Um, you're weird if you, if you, if you want to eat vegan because basically you're living like a, like a hamster. And that narrative has changed gradually. I think maybe first was the organic wave and then started lactose free, um, alternatives. And now we're finally arriving at vegan where not every vegan product has to be organic anymore, but people are looking for it anyway. It's like dif- different avenues from which people have ended up with the same idea of these vegan yes exactly milk chocolates and um also it's the arrival of different ingredients and that becoming normal just just as an example oat milk coffee i think last year was one of the big beverage trends um and before that people were like what you can drink oat milk and nowadays it's become something normal uh same with coconut milk same with rice milk for example I think the coffee industry also did a lot of um, groundwork there first. 
Do you think that was also about two years ago that you started seeing in supermarkets and cafes more like almond milk, oat milk, rice milk? Yes. I'm not not sure if it's just two years ago, but that might have heard it longer. That, yeah, the coffee industry going like the, the oat milk lattes and the soy milk lattes and all those alternatives. Once that started to arrive in a coffee shop, it started to become more normal for people to choose a vegan option. So you, you also mentioned um, lactose-free milk alternatives. And I think in the U.S. we have a strong, not just preference for dairy, but I think there it may be even on the law books that a milk chocolate is made with specifically cow's milk. But do you see any potential for other lactose-free alternatives like sheep or buffalo, camel, goat's milk? Or does that kind of have nothing to do with people's interest? Well, uh, first of all, any mammal's milk has lactose. So the whether it's sheep milk or goat milk, um, the levels might be different, but they all contain lactose. So for lactose intolerant people, it might not be a good substitute. Um, but there are people who are allergic to cow's milk, for example. Um, we have tried a, uh, a chocolate with lactose-free cow's milk and we had it for a few years, but it wasn't, it wasn't what we thought it would be in terms of, I think that we just, we don't have that many lactose intolerant customers because otherwise they would have chosen that chocolate more often if they really wanted to have cow's milk, but lactose-free. I think we definitely have more vegan customers. So we stopped the lactose-free cow's milk chocolate because it was just not it was just not selling and we didn't see a lot of interest from people. Chocolates like rice milk, soy milk, coconut milk were definitely selling a lot better. So I I have a hard time determining whether it's just the lactose-free component or whether it's more like the plant-based dairy or plant-based milk component definitely think that vegan customers are more than lactose-free. And we've tried, um, in terms of in ingredients, we've had mare's milk, goat's milk, and sheep milk um, chocolates. However, people were kind of like very wary of trying them, and they do have a very different flavor. And we found that most people were not really into the sheep milk flavor, definitely not the goat milk flavor. Um, and we're just more ready to accept a different flavor in chocolate if it was from coconut milk, for example, or soy milk. I'm really excited to try all of your chocolates because I, I think I've only tried maybe five or six bars from you, including <laughs> the three vegan chocolates that kind of inspired part of this story and also the hunt to chat with you. Because I, I really was trying to find some a company that was using more than two milk alternatives because for the most part there are companies that are either vegan as an ethic consideration mm -hmm. and their company in total but there aren't that many companies that have chosen to branch out from the typical so how, how did you decide upon rice and coconut for your other two dairy alternatives for your well it was available like once we started the soy milk um the soy milk is great, but it has a very distinct flavor. It tastes more like a cereal bar. Um, or it has that cereal type quality to it. Um, and as soon as coconut milk and rice milk started to be available, those were really interesting because rice milk doesn't have a lot of flavor. So you can use it as a milk component without it being overpowering. 
and the coconut because well it carries a strong coconut flavor and coconut also met a few years ago was quite a trendy ingredient and tastes super good so um it it offered a lot of possibility to try different kinds of chocolates so it was the first reason was again more the experimentation and the flavor qualities and the second aspect after that became vegan options and uh like a like an eco-conscious chocolate basically and now it's uh also a well a challenge but a very welcome one to create more and more different vegan options especially because of like eco-conscious thoughts but we don't make chocolates just because they are vegan um the challenge is to make them taste like like chocolates that every other person that's not necessarily concerned about the environment or about veganism also can enjoy and we hope that they will you know like eat more and more of them that way they don't feel like they have to say no to things but at the same time their lifestyle changes to be a little bit more eco-conscious so as other alternatives that you've mentioned before you mentioned uh, oat milk in particular have you tried them as they've become available have you considered expanding the line <laughs> So um, we have tried uh, golden millet, <laughs> tried buckwheat, um, we have tried uh, oat milk as well. Um, the challenge with uh, some of the ingredients, such as such as these, is that um, there isn't really a market for those powders. So um, the difficulty for the producer supplying the milk powder was that. At the end, in the end, we were the only customer that would buy like a certain volume, and it became impossible for them to keep up their production. So, even though golden millet and buckwheat were really good, um, at some point uh, the raw materials weren't available anymore because the production that made the powders couldn't keep up production anymore because they couldn't find a market. So, there's so many options out there. It's just sometimes difficult to get all the raw materials so we'd like to have buckwheat and golden millet again for example but there's just no no organic supplier that we can, we have access to I have a couple of other questions written down that pertain a bit more to the chemistry but i'd like to go down that avenue a bit more of the demand of these potential alternative smoothers is what i call them because they're not they're te they're legally inclusions because it doesn't in the mm -hmm. U.S. because of the dairy, but in Austria, uh, I think it was Mars. They th someone announced a few months ago that they're introducing a, a vegan, completely vegan line of of chocolates to the the mass market. What kind of effect do you see that having on the availability of more niche things as these big companies, these mass producers of chocolate, start getting into the vegan or milk alternative market? Well, I think for, I have no idea if that was Mars or I haven't heard about any big company doing that, but I think I would welcome this news because for one thing, they have access to a lot of customers. And if a big company makes a change like that to offer like a new product, then they open a lot of people's minds that we as a small company or as an organic company don't have access to. So. In general, that's a good thing for them to, to change or at least offer one, one range that is vegan. 
even if some people might call that greenwashing, I think in the greater good kind of sense, it's a good thing that they're doing it. For availability, definitely, because the more and more people start thinking about non-dairy options, the more companies there will be that look for interesting options as well. So my, my thought is that maybe if Mars is doing that, I would say that probably they would choose rice milk or soy milk because those are the easiest options available if you want to go vegan uh, and probably also the cheapest. Um, but with that demand rising, I think there would be a lot more other companies looking for alternatives that are interesting, like, for example, coconut milk or buckwheat or golden millet just to, or, or, um, or oat milk. So I think that's generally a good thing. Almost no matter what kind of choice they make in terms of their dairy alternative, it's going to have less environmental impact than dairy. Exactly. So that's great. <laughs> I mean, what role do you think small, more craft or niche producers have had in forcing the hand of these big companies to start competing in that realm? Do you think that they've had a great impact or is it more just a societal thing? Like which which is the cause and which is the effect? The chocolate makers or society? I think that um, the smaller craft chocolate industry definitely has had an impact in a discussion. If you look at sales numbers, then it's basically like dropping you know, like a glass of water in the ocean. But um, I think in purely in terms of discussion and lifestyle, there has been a big um, big effect, and also. In general, big food companies are obviously facing a uh, a downward spiral in prices, and it's a very hard market out there for them, I think, uh, margin-wise. So obviously they'd also be looking into how to generate bigger margins. And I think that the vegan or natural or alternative movement is definitely one of the big food trends of the past years or the coming years. And there's a lot of economic benefit in big companies to also changing towards that. I don't think they do it out, out of ecologic responsibility. Last year, I was at a big uh, chocolate conference that was for the basically really big chocolate companies in Germany. And they were talking about the future food trends that they saw in the snacking industry. And you've probably heard of that. The free from trend has definitely hit the bigger companies as well. Uh, sugar is a big discussion, but also dairy-free. So for them, like this entire eco-conscious uh, vibe is definitely making a big impact. The craft chocolate industry has definitely done its part in it. Um, but I, I think the power is more in the societal change than in purely the craft chocolate industry. They've just shown that it's possible and that the more and more they are starting to offer alternatives, the more and more time the big companies are going to lose on offering their alternatives as well and and not lose market share to smaller companies. Yeah, I agree. I, I think craft chocolate, more niche craft chocolate companies are not necessarily, but oftentimes a, the, the word's not really effect, but a, a symptom, if that makes sense, a symptom mm -hmm. of the change and just general societal shift towards being more eco-conscious and more thoughtful in how you're consuming resources. Definitely, yeah. So I have a couple of questions just about uh, formulating bars because 
for example, when you're using a milk powder, it's the standard. So mm-hmm. when you're balancing recipes for like a soy milk or a rice milk, how deep into the chemistry do you go? How, how do you go about formulating a new recipe for a bar? Well, what we do a lot of times is a lot of trial and error. Basically, the milk powder, so you, you can't use liquid unless you're using something like the Hershey process, but uh, we're not doing that. So those powders are usually quite easy to use, and usually most powders you can use just like dairy powder in terms of quantities or ratios. And then you you just try. Like, for example, rice milk powder tends to be stickier because of the natural starch content it has than dairy milk powder because dairy milk doesn't have any any starch and, 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 and doesn't have the same sugars and has a different fat structure. So um, you can start by using the same formula, actually, and then see how that changes the flavor and how that changes the chocolate texture. But we don't do any any chemical experiments first. For example, when you have a look at the fat content of dairy milk powder, and then you look at the fat content of soy milk powder, it will give you a little bit of an indicator on how much you can substitute them for each other. Soy milk has a lower fat content, so um, your chocolate might not be as liquid afterwards or not as, as smooth as with dairy. But other than that, you can always you can always try to play around with that, for example, in adding more cocoa butter. Or if the flavor is too strong, then add more cocoa and less soy milk. There's not really a, like a fixed rule that we have. We have white chocolates based on soy milk, rice milk, and coconut milk. We have dark chocolates based on, or with coconut milk and soy milk. So it's really more experimentation and having machines that are not uh, a black box, basically. I think that can be an issue, though I don't have any experience with this, with, for example, the McIntyre machines. Those are like big mixers where you just add all the ingredients into the mix and then it just grinds the ingredients down versus us working with roller refiners. So you have a little bit more of an open process where you can always feel the product and see the product um, and then also determine whether the changes that you made are going to be good or bad. So in getting into formulating the recipes, it's more so about finding the macronutrient ingredients and levels of each individual powder and trying to make sure that that meshes as much with traditional dairy milk powder. Yes. Okay. Or it doesn't even have to match all the way. Like some, some things are just way more um, hygroscopic. That's something that probably one needs to be most careful about. Um, for example, rice milk powder again is very hygroscopic. So that that means it tends to keep moisture in. Tends to um, attract moisture exactly. So when you gonge that, which releases moisture, um, it can happen that the powder, the rice milk, will start to catch that uh, humidity, and then start to recrystallize. So. What one has to be careful with is the gonching temperatures, um, the energy intake, but that's more of a trial and error thing, and it's very specific to what kind of technology people use. So, for example, if you use a uh, um, like a like a grinder, a mallinger, like most bean-to-bar crafts, you're never going to reach these high temperatures uh, that are really going to matter 
for example, when it comes to gonshing. So every technology has, has its advantages or, or disadvantages. Is there a specific ratio that you know off the top of your head that you need for fat to solids for making a milk or a white chocolate? Well, in, it depends. Like, for example, if you have 100% dark chocolate, that's typically about 50% fat, right? So more fat is always possible. Um, but we're looking at a minimum of 35% for a certain liquidity that we want. But one has to be careful. Uh, cocoa butter is the ideal hardness for chocolate. And as soon as you start adding other fats, like for example, the milk fat and milk powder or the almond oil and almond powder or, or any such thing, that will change the fat composition and make your chocolate softer. Or coconut. Coconut milk is a big thing because that has a lot of coconut oil in it. And coconut oil melts faster than cocoa butter. So, of course, the, the white chocolate that you make with coconut milk powder is going to be more, is, is, is going to be kind of soft. But then if you do it with normal dairy milk, that's also going to be soft because butter is softer than cocoa butter. I think uh, currently we're experimenting with anything between 15 to 40% milk powder in the formulation. And you can do that with coconuts as well, for example. We have a chocolate that has 20% coconut powder. We have a chocolate that has 40%. So I know you also have a, a line of no sugar added milk chocolates that I knew goes low as high as um, 70% and 30% milk powder. I think that's the, um, that's the, uh, the, most, the, the milkiest one. So this 3070 to 2080, um, and uh, we've just started with a, a vegan option as well, which is a coconut paste one. So it's like a 20% uh, coconut powder. It's about, well, yeah, 20% coconut powder, about 15 fruit powder, mango in that case, um, and the rest cocoa. That's genius. Oh, it tastes really weird and really good <laughs> I, love, I love weird and good preferably together <laughs> yeah with these kinds of chocolates though um it's very important to manage people's expectations because it doesn't taste like a milk chocolate at all and it's not sweet at all it's fruity and, and tropical actually I th well, one thing i think Zotter does really well with having so many bars is that you don't necessarily manage people's expectations you expand them or like definitions, preconceived notions of like what chocolate is or what chocolate can be. Yeah, that's really important to us too. Um, we have this this motto basically is like um, never ask your customer what they want because they of course have no idea what they want. Um, a, a customer, a consumer, any person on the street can only tell you what they already know because that's the only answer they can give, right? Like if you ask them, what do you want? They can only reflect on things that they already know that they like. Um, but that, of course, narrows the pool of options because everyone's defined by their childhood memories, what their parents cook for them, their experiences, their, their travels. Um, but they're not 
in a way, experts in the field of chocolate, for example. And people would not be able to tell you, hey, I want to try this weird chocolate flavor because I never thought that was possible. And that's our job. And it's so much easier to offer a new experience to people. And perhaps you're going to find their new favorite chocolate because it's something that they never expected. Um, perhaps they're going to hate it, but at least it's going to give people a memory, a memorable experience of something new. And that will always stay with them and expand their curiosity. Like if you ask a, like a random room full of people what kinds of chocolates that they know, I think you would probably come up with five different kinds. It's like probably milk dark and whites and hazelnuts and I don't know what else, something classic. If you give them a tasting of 200 different chocolates, I'm pretty sure that their new favorite chocolates are not going to be milk white or dark, but they're going to find some flavor that kind of like agrees with them, but they never thought it was possible to do that with chocolate. And that's why we have so many different flavors. We don't, we don't want to ask people what they want. We want to give them options and find their own favorite kind of flavor. You're also always playing with different ingredients and different kinds of formulations, it seems like. So do you have any hint or any idea inside as to what the next frontier in terms of more environmentally friendly production and ingredient sourcing might be in the chocolate field? Well, what we're seeing is definitely a trend towards all kinds of inclusions. So flavors that are, let's say, different than your single origin experience, because that is always like the, the, the wine among chocolates, right? Like the, the thing that you need to think about and ponder and think about flavors and differences. Whereas an inclusion is always going to be easier accessible for more people. Um, so definitely the vegan trend is a very strong one that we've experienced, but we just launched a new line as well of sugar alternatives. So chocolates that are aiming to reduce sugar levels, offer different sources of sugar that might be more wholesome or natural or healthy for people, uh, sugar-free options, uh, working with organic sugar substitutes. So sugar is definitely a big discussion. And we don't think sugar is bad. It's just offering different alternatives to people who are looking for sugar alternatives because it's a different flavor, because it might be more healthy, because it's a lower sugar content and still makes them happy. So I think that might be a big new thing that especially small companies can start first. And then it's always about the experimentation. A Mars will never try, I don't know, like we have a seaweed caramel chocolate, for example. that tastes really great, but Mars would never try that. So all kinds of like experimentation and probably in the next few years, anything that's eco-conscious and health-conscious is definitely a big, is, is going to be a big topic. So those are all of the questions that I had prepared for the topic of milk alternatives and the rise of their popularity and their availability. But is there, do you have any final thoughts or anything that you feel like you haven't had a chance to share yet on that topic? Well, I think what's 
And you've mentioned this um, as well. What's interesting is that in the US, just as in Europe, there's still so many concepts about what chocolate should be. Like, for example, as you mentioned, the dairy chocolate um, question of what is a milk chocolate and what isn't. And I think that's all rooted in very old concepts when nothing else was available. And governments tried to protect consumers uh, so they couldn't be cheated into, you know, buying a milk chocolate that in the end did not really have much milk. But I think it's time to rethink those concepts because those are, I don't know how many decades old. But nowadays, chocolate and many other products are so much more open with so many new raw materials available and also the internet to help tell customers about what they're eating. There's no need for, you know, like these kinds of really conservative regulations to tell people what a chocolate is or isn't. We have that challenge here as well. Like, for example, our fruit bars, which are based on freeze-dried fruits and cocoa butter and sugar and a little bit of milk powder or coconut powder or other dairy alternatives, they're per definition not called chocolate. So they're called fruit bars or, or whatever else you want to call them, but you can't call them chocolate. But there are so many new options. So I think what's going to be important in the future is to make that a little bit more relaxed. So there are more options. And I think that's a big obstacle for bigger companies. We want to call things chocolate that are dairy alternative, but if you're not allowed to, then it also doesn't become like a viable thing for them. But if we really do want to be eco-conscious, then we also need to make space for big companies to change. Because otherwise there there's no point in us sitting in like a like a big white ivory tower and presiding morally over bigger companies without them changing. Also it doesn't make any sense because then there's not going to be any meaningful change. I think it's if we change we change all together. Do you see big companies starting to, like, do you see the potential for big companies starting to lobby basically lawmakers to change the definitions for chocolate? Because when people can't see the word chocolate on packaging, maybe it's not as obvious that it's still made with cacao. Or do you think that they'll just get more creative in their marketing of dairy free? I think getting more creative in the marketing in the beginning is probably the cheaper option for them. Um, but I think in the long run, there will be more openness. The more people demand dairy alternatives, the more it will be for bigger companies also to, to start offering these products. And at some point there will be a strong enough, like, incentive for them to really lobby for that. In the beginning, especially when you only have smaller companies offering an alternative, obviously a big company First of all, they're usually conservative. They don't want to change. They're really so. Um, and it's easier for them to just keep uh, the existing rule sets um, alive. So smaller companies that offer niche products have harder access to market. So in the beginning, they will do anything to suppress change. But as soon as the movement becomes strong enough, like now with the eco-social or, or eco-conscious movement, at some point you can't keep that under lids anymore. And then I think things will start changing really fast. Mm -hmm.